Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're talking about the science of pain and how to manage it, discussing the pros and cons of having kids, one of our most popular series, or learning how to make your hair as strong and healthy as possible. And yes, those are all real episodes, and they are linked in the show notes if you want to listen. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Ramani Dervasala to the podcast. Dr. Ramani is a psychologist and the world's leading expert on narcissism. She's authored several books on the subject, including her newest, which is called It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People, which came out this week and is jam-packed with information. She's been featured on the Today Show at South by Southwest. She's given a TED Talk, and she has her own mega popular YouTube channel and podcast, which is called Navigating Narcissism with Dr. Ramani. This episode is so highly requested, and I want it to function as your all-in-one guide to identifying narcissists in your life and knowing exactly how to deal with them. We get into how to recognize a narcissist and how prevalent they are in society, how to know if you're in a relationship with a narcissist and exactly what to do next, what gaslighting actually is and what everyone gets wrong about it, if a person is born or becomes a narcissist what to do if someone you love is dating a narcissist. This was such good advice. We have all been there where our friend is in a toxic relationship and Dr. Romani shares what we definitely do not want to do in that scenario and what we do want to do. Such good advice. We get into how to know if you are in a trauma bond and what to do about it, how to identify a narcissist in online dating, the surefire way to know that you are not a narcissist, how to manage a relationship with narcissistic parents, how to deal with narcissistic coworkers and bosses, and so much more. We also talk about which of your favorite, my favorite, all of our favorite TV couples are narcissists and trauma bonds, all of that type of stuff, which was so fun and so fascinating. It's fun to be able to put real faces and real stories to these things. And also, I just love talking about TV and movies, so that was really fun. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Dr. Romani is at Dr. Romani. As you will hear in the episode, narcissists are way, way more common than I thought they were, at least. So there is a good chance that someone in your life is dealing with a narcissist. So do not hesitate to send this episode around. Let's all bring these conversations out into the open and let's get the information that we need to help ourselves and to help each other. Okay, let's get right into it. Let's get into all things narcissism with Dr. Ramani. Dr. Ramani, welcome to the show today. Thank I'm you so excited so much. to chat. I'm so happy to be here and I know you're a busy lady, so I'm so excited <laughs> that you got me on your schedule, so thank you. Oh my gosh, it's completely my pleasure. So let's just dive right in. Can you explain in the simplest terms what narcissism actually is? Yeah, so narcissism's a personality style. Everyone's got a personality. Narcissism's one of many personalities a person can have. Narcissism is what we consider more of a maladaptive style because it's not good for relationships. Frankly, it's not good for the person who has it. But narcissism as a personality style is characterized by having inconsistent or variable empathy, entitlement, grandiosity, 
arrogance, being very superficial, being very vain, very selfish, controlling. And the, the kinds of behaviors that show up for people with these personalities are lots of manipulativeness and gaslighting and taking advantage of other people and turning people against each other and invalidating them and leaving them feeling like they're not important and confusing them and sometimes really running really hot and then really running cold. So there are the traits associated with the personality, the entitlement, the grandiosity, and all of that. And then there's the behaviors that are associated with those traits. But it's a personality style. And I think one of the big misconceptions is that narcissism is a personality disorder. There is a disorder called narcissistic personality disorder, but there is a personality style called narcissism. And in the vast majority of people out there who are managing these relationships, they're never going to know if the person they're in a relationship with has the personality disorder because they're probably not going to end up in a therapist's office where they're going to get diagnosed. So suffice it to say that narcissism is the personality and it's a problem. And I think that leads to a lot of the confusion online yeah. is people are like, oh, we're talking about narcissism, but all these people aren't like going and getting diagnosed. So maybe it's being overblown or overhyped. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, how prevalent is narcissistic personality disorder? And then how prevalent do you think narcissism as a dominant trait is mm -hmm. in society? So, narcissistic personality disorder, when we look at the epidemiological studies, we see prevalence rates of one to 6%, depending on the study you look at, right? So these are research studies that are designed to sort of assess people's mental health, mental illness, personality disorders, you name it, one to 6%. What we don't have is good research on narcissistic personality in the population. If you were to ask me to spitball a guess, I would spitball that a narcissism at a level enough that someone else would notice it, right? So significant enough that it was observable, I would guess closer to 20%, one in five. If you caught me on a good day, I might give you a 15%, but somewhere between one in five, one in six people are narcissistic enough that it impacts other people. And is it on a spectrum? Like, are we all a little bit narcissistic and it's just a matter of when it starts to present in ways that are problematic? Yeah, it is on a spectrum. And I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a lot of people think it's black or white. Are they narcissistic or not? When you look at it at a spectrum, you can see why it feels so different depending on how severe the person you're in a relationship with. At the milder end, you have somebody who is sort of into themselves, maybe a little arrogant, probably very superficial, very status-seeking. I call them our Instagram narcissists. They're just sort of obsessed with likes and followers and does everyone like me and is my life fabulous enough? They're immature, they're silly, they're definitely not made for long-term relationships, but they probably won't hurt you, right? They're definitely not the person you're going to turn to in a crisis. You're not going to go share your problems with them, but they're not harmful. If we go to the other end of that spectrum, to the most severe side, we're seeing more of a malignant narcissism. And in the malignant narcissism actually can be quite harmful. These are relationships that might even in some cases be characterized by violence, certainly psychological abuse always. And it almost has the feel of, of psychopathy. I mean, it's quite severe, coercive, manipulative, isolating. And in the middle, that sort of moderate narcissism, if you will, that's actually what most people are dealing with. It's not quite that sort of cotton candy of the low end. It's more of this, like, this is a problem. This person's chronically invalidating me. I don't know who I'm going to come home to, that kind of thing. And most people who are dealing with, if you will, narcissistic abuse are dealing with those people in the middle. Would you say in the middle, there's hope for the relationship? Like, at what point 
does it tip over to being like, we should not be in any sort of relationship with these people? It depends on what you mean by hope, right? In my guidance to folks, I never am prescriptive about you got to go because it's not an option that's available to everyone, right? I'm getting really frustrated at the number of people who aren't psychologists, aren't trained as therapists, and who are on TikTok and Instagram saying, no contact, get out. When that's not an option to a person, and that's given as the option, then people feel even more helpless. So the bigger question then is, what's your situation? Some people, there's issues around children, money, culture, religion, family, whatever a person's reasons are, they're valid. So they're saying, I can't leave this. To which I'd say that, okay, this is never going to be a deep mutual, satisfying, healthy relationship. That's not on the table. However, with radical acceptance and realistic expectations, you at least won't be getting burned every time. I'm trying to give people a sort of the hot mitt you put on your hand so you don't get burned every time you interact with these folks because the relationship's never going to be healthy. That's not a thing. But if people sort of understand the dynamics of it, then they might at least be able to navigate it in a way where it may not be hurtful every single day. It's still going to be hurtful. I mean, people are human beings. And when somebody's invalidating you, it hurts. But it may not be hurtful in the same way you may not be as surprised. How do we know when somebody is exhibiting normal levels or when it is problematic? Like, is it if we feel hurt, then it's probably a problematic level? You would want to look at a couple of things. You want to look at the consistency of it. And this is one of the things where people say, how do I know this person's narcissistic? I tell them in some ways, it almost doesn't matter if they meet this designation of narcissistic as much as there's consistent patterns in this relationship that are really, really unhealthy, right? And so I would say that you're looking for the consistency of this. Does this show up maybe more days than not or shows up multiple times a week? Because narcissistic relationships, you got to remember, there are good days. And the good days are good, like they're fun and they're sassy and sizzly and the vacations are great and the sex is great and all of that. And then there are always bad days. And then there's a few good days. Now, over time, the bad days probably outweigh the good days, but people get thrown off. They're saying, we had a good weekend, like we had a really good time. Maybe it's not this. And then something happens and then it's a bad day. That up and down, the mask going on and off is very much a hallmark of a narcissistic relationship. But we're looking for consistency and how, you know, it's a regular pattern. The experience of the person in the relationship, that's the issue. So over time, people who are in narcissistic relationships feel very confused, anxious, helpless, hopeless, powerless, sad. They blame themselves. They doubt themselves. When those are the things that are mounting up because you're saying, I don't know what to do, to make this relationship work. Nothing I do works. I try to look different. I try to be different. I'm trying to say this. I'm trying to do this. I push back. I no longer get into arguments with them. And it's still not enough. And it's never going to be enough. And I think that people know, in fact, most people, by the time they're really willing to say, yep, this is what's happening to me, they've been experiencing it for months, sometimes even years. It's really helpful to hear you say it will never be enough because I think a lot of people who are in 
narcissistic relationships of any Mm -hmm. sort, they find themselves questioning a lot like, well, am I too sensitive? Mm -hmm. Is this Mm -hmm. a me thing? Would somebody else be totally fine with the things they're saying, the things that they're doing? It can be really hard to Mm -hmm. disentangle that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think a lot of people, they are confusing relationships, right? We, We hear this word gaslighting, gaslighting. Everyone uses the word gaslighting. It is sort of a hallmark pattern in narcissistic relationships because number one, narcissistic people always shift blame on other people, right? So they've done something wrong. You think you, for a minute you're in a normal relationship. You say, I'm having a problem with whatever you've done. They'll tell you, they'll either deny it, even though they've done it. They will say, I think you're misunderstanding it. So they're doubting your perception of it. And then they'll turn around and say, I think you're paranoid. I think you're crazy. I think there's something wrong with you. Now that doesn't just happen once. It happens over and over and over again. And because of that, people doubt themselves so much that it takes forever for them to say, oh, this isn't cool. We're in an interesting era now. When I started doing this work 20 years ago or so, nobody talked about it. So there was no content. There was no place to turn. And when they talk to other people about, oh, relationships are hard, relationships are work. And so we're only now beginning to sort of call these patterns what they are. And even still, there's resistance in the mental health world to this. So it's been an uphill battle, but it's real. And that level of confusion, it takes a minute to deprogram from that. But when you're always walking around confused and you're having different experiences, I think another ringer is that you might have a job or you might have friends, you'll say, these relationships are going smoothly. There's a back and forth. I feel heard by these people. I don't feel anxious. And then I come home and I feel like I'm out of my mind. Notice that difference and say, well, these people are also kind to me and compassionate and respectful. And sometimes it's we get so caught up in looking at just the relationship, we don't contrast it to other settings. Mm. Okay. I have two questions on that and then we'll circle back mm-hmm. to more of like where does narcissism come Mm -hmm. from, et cetera. But gaslighting, like you said, it's Mm -hmm. thrown around a lot. Mm -hmm. Can you explain in very clear terms Mm -hmm. what it is and I think more Mm -hmm. importantly, what it is not? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give you an example that came up for me on my way here today. I was using GPS. I was like, I want to be on time for Liz. My GPS tells me at 11 this morning, you're going to be there in 43 minutes. I'm like, great. I'm going to be there for me 17 minutes early. Perfect. I'm driving, I'm driving, and you know, 43 minutes becomes 52 minutes, becomes an hour and three minutes. I was saying out loud, I'm like, oh, GPS, you gaslighted me. And then I thought, no, GPS didn't gaslight me. GPS misled me. And there's a great example of where, like, your GPS messed with you. Like, it told you one thing. My GPS future faked me. It said, yeah, you're going to get there in 43 minutes. And I'm oh, sorry, just kidding. It was an hour and three minutes, right? It was a bait and switch. But that's not gaslighting. It's a piece of the gaslighting equation. But a lot of people will think someone's lying to them when they're misleading them that they're gaslighting them. It's a part of it, but it's not all of it. So a lie is not a gaslight. So let me tell you what gaslighting is. Gaslighting is the denial or the doubting of somebody's reality, perceptions, or experiences. That's done repeatedly, and it's followed up with a characterization of the person as crazy or having something wrong with them. So it's a one-two punch. If my GPS started talking to me and said, 
I never said it was going to be 43 minutes. What's wrong with you? Maybe you need to learn to read. Maybe you need new glasses. You know what, old lady? This is about you. Old people shouldn't be driving cars. I'd be like, oh, GPS, so not nice, right? That's the part that hurts if my GPS started going off on me, right? But when my GPS changed the time, I was still mad at it, but it misled me. And so that misleading part is different than the next part of it when they're saying, well, there's something wrong with you. And the combination of those two things is gaslighting. Let's say a human being said that to me. Oh, you'll be there in 45 minutes. It took me over an hour. I, my temptation would be to call the person and say, yo, you gaslighted me. They didn't gaslight me. They misled me. And I think some people will call gaslighting a difference of opinion. You might say to me, this is a great restaurant. I love this restaurant. And I go and I'm like, this is this terrible restaurant. You didn't gaslight me. We just had two different opinions about that restaurant. I mean, I like that kind of food. But everyone's calling all this other stuff gaslighting. It's a very specific denial of perception or experience. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I never saw that person. I've never talked to them. And then you're paranoid. There's something wrong with you. Oh, you're so needy. Why are you like this? Boom, boom. That's gaslighting. How does gaslighting work when it's something that you can't get a concrete truth about? Like, I feel like the way I see it show up in relationships of people that I know is a disagreement about what somebody said in an argument or what happened in Mm -hmm. the past. You Mm -hmm. always did this. You did this sometime, whatever. If you can't get a concrete truth, what are you supposed to do in that situation? First of all, anytime someone in a relationship says, you always this, I'm like, okay, we're already going into a bad place. There can be perceptual differences in a relationship. In fact, that is the problem with relationships, right? There are often differences in perception. You want to have sex all the time. You never want to have sex, right? That kind of thing. It's how they communicate after that difference that makes it gaslighting. So then if in that difference of opinion, the person says, you are the most needy, losery, stupid person. I can't believe I'm in this absolute joke of a relationship. Now we're in gaslighting. Does that make sense? So it's not just the difference of, oh my gosh, you always say this, you always do this. I'll tell you this, we're about to exit the freeway onto gaslighting. I'm seeing it coming. But if then the person says, you know what? I shouldn't say that to you. It's happened a lot. I shouldn't say you always do this. I think I'm frustrated today. Now we've taken the car back out of the gaslighting lane. So that's really interesting because I got a lot of questions about gaslighting and how do I make the other person see reality when they're gaslighting me? But what you're suggesting is almost like it's not about seeing a shared reality. It's about the hurtful things that they're seeing after the agreed upon reality. Your example is a great one because there's reality and there's reality, right? So there's reality. There's a bottle of water on the table. Okay. And if you said, I don't see a bottle of water on the table, this is very clear. I could take a picture of it. Look, I could call someone else. Isn't there a bottle of water on the table? You're talking about sort of perceptual differences in relationship. You don't like my friends. You never want to spend time with my friends. Okay, so now we're getting into more of a trickier space because it could be that this person's literally said, I don't like your friends, or it could just be that they're cool on their friends, but they don't articulate that. Now we're talking about trying to pull a perceptual thing out of a person, right? So there are these perceptual differences It gets tricky because if the person's saying, you really don't like my friends, every time they come over, you leave. Now the person says, I don't leave, but they do leave, okay? Now they're lying. They're lying because they did. Last time your friends came over, they left. But still not gaslighting. Okay, it's still not gaslighting. The gaslighting really starts when they say, 
I am so sick and tired of you running everything in this house, right? Everything has to be your weird social world. See what I'm saying? It turns into this sort of criticism. The term gaslight came out of the play in the late 1930s, which then became a film, which is where the sort of more iconic depiction was. If anyone was to watch that film, okay, they will see that not only was Ingrid Bergman, her character was called Paula, not only was her husband moving things around the house, the gaslights were going on and off. He was saying, oh, darling, you must be so tired. Yeah, I think this is your fatigue. It seems like you're so stressed since your aunt died, that kind of thing, right? So in that case, he's sort of painting her as having something wrong with her right? You're not seeing it right because there's something wrong with you. Oh, you're in therapy now. So maybe you're just not right in the head or you've had memory problems since the baby was born. That kind of stuff, that's where it's a gaslight because the doubting of the person's experience is now being sort of galvanized by this, there's something wrong with you. And here's the evidence that there's something wrong with you. Does that make sense? It does. So if we identify gaslighting in our relationship, is that always indicative of narcissism? It's not always. So all narcissists gaslight, not all gaslighters are narcissistic. Okay. That's sort of how those umbrellas work. So if we think of it as when a person is being gaslighted, okay, we've all made the mistake of gaslighting someone. I think if, especially if we're cornered, it's a common time when someone will say, I never said that. I never did that. Lay off of me. What's wrong with you? Boom. That's a gaslight. Okay. We've done that when we were in a corner. Now, when the person's not narcissistic and they gaslight you, you might have the opportunity to say, hey, 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 there's nothing wrong with me. I'm having a conversation here. And that person backs down and says, okay, you know what? I am sorry. I'm stressed. And okay, I guess we need to talk and might even come clean. A narcissistic person ain't never budging. By and large, in 90% of the cases, gaslighting is an abusive dynamic, especially if it's happened more than a few times, right? One time, sure. But more than a few times, now you've got a real pattern because they really are saying there's something wrong with you. I've worked with couples where somebody recently had a baby or it's a hetero couple and the woman is on her menstrual cycle. And she'll say like, how come you're out so late last night? Like, what was that about? Like, I don't get it. And he's like, what? I wasn't back that late. He was. That's a lie. And she could see it on the ADT that the door opened at this time. And he's like, babe, during your period, you get like this. So it even feels warm, right? It's not like he's attacking her. You always get like this during your period. Have you been taking that medication they were giving you to help you when you're having your period? That's gaslighting. But there's no calling a gaslighter out. Gaslighting by definition is a manipulation and an abuse. Someone's manipulating and abusing you. Do you really think they're going to come clean? No. So the mistake some people do is they try to run headlong into it and say, whoa, you're gaslighting me. That's a mistake. Knowing they're gaslighting you, now is when you say, okay, it's clear this is what I'm in a relationship with. How do I want to proceed? One thing that people often do when they're gaslighted is they try to show the evidence. They'll pull out the cell phone or pull out the ADT and say, uh-uh, the door opened at 12.15, okay? Or they'll say, let me show you all the text messages and they're screenshotting and sending. Evidence doesn't work with a gaslighter. They're not interested in the evidence. And if you show them the evidence, they're going to say, oh, great. What is the CIA spying on us now too? So I live in a police state now. Is that what this is? You want to pull out all the old texts? And then they start to deflect. By the time a skilled gaslighter is done, you will literally feel like you're a bad person who has something wrong with you. So what 
should we do in that moment? There's the identification of like, is this a pattern? Maybe I should reevaluate the relationship, couples therapy, personal therapy, all of that. But if it's a one-off thing, if we're not showing the evidence, what should we be doing instead? So if it's a one-off thing, so it's a, you're in a relationship, it's never happened like this before, you do say, hey, like, what the heck? And they're like, oh, and they kind of do something gaslighting. And you say, whoa, 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 wrong with me. I'm merely asking you something. I've got the text here, like, what's going on? And the person steps down, now you know you have a path forward, right? But if you come up against a gaslighter and they're just boom, 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 and they're doubling and tripling down, that's it. There's really no path forward under those conditions, not with the person. That, as you said astutely, you've got to be in therapy. Like So much of the work I've done with clients over the years was ungaslighting them. They would show me the evidence. They would tell me what happened. I'll say, yeah, this person, this is what they're doing. And they'll say, they are, aren't they? I'll say, you're absolutely correct. So they need a third party. Now, not everyone has a therapist, you can sometimes have a third party ungaslight you. And in fact, something I've said, sometimes happens more in work settings where you'll be in a meeting, okay, and there's multiple people in the meeting, and you'll see someone gaslight someone in the meeting. I'll tell you one of the most powerful interventions in the world is maybe you don't do it in the meeting, especially if you have less power, but after the meeting, I take you aside and say, hey, Liz, you know what? What he was saying to you, he was gaslighting you. You were absolutely right about that deadline. I heard it that way too, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Now Liz feels sane. Doesn't mean that the person who gaslighted her is any less of a problem, but we're not gonna change him. I'm now helping you feel more whole. You will start trusting yourself more. And the more you trust yourself, the more you can be more gaslight resistant. So if we see our friends getting gaslit by their partners, we should be affirming their reality so that they feel more resilient, resistant, but not perhaps saying anything after that. You could say to your friend saying, I saw what happened at dinner. Are you okay? Always start with empathy. I'm a big fan of start with empathy. You okay? And they might say, why? Why? Because if you're gaslighted enough, you stop noticing it and say, you said that that wasn't true. What he was saying happened. That didn't happen. And your friend will, it'll crack it right away. In the film Gaslight, that's exactly what happened. It was the police detective that said, that's not happening. And that was it. The light, boom, the lights were on for her almost right away. And frankly, it happens about that quickly. When people are told, you know, that's not what's going on, then you're right. Then you step back because your friend's got to make her choices at that point. It can't be, he's a gaslighter, get out. It might be that that's what just happened. Or you don't even have to use the word gaslight. You could say, he's totally twisting your reality. That's not what happened. You've planted the seed. Your friend will do with the seed what they will but they will feel heard and they will feel validated. I love the idea of building resilience in the people we love versus telling them what to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful. Absolutely. It is very powerful because the one thing that all human beings want is to be seen, or three things, to be seen, heard, and validated. That's what we've wanted since the day we were born. A good parent does that. And a lot of people don't have a good parent. But as we get into adulthood, that's how therapy works, you know, where we validate the experience of the client. That's why people keep coming back, especially if they're living in a world where there's a lot of people who are not seeing them or hearing them or validating them. And when you even have one person doing that, that's why therapy is so powerful in this space. Doesn't mean people will leave, but they will stop feeling like they're falling apart. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years, and I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. 
And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin. And I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody. Okay, I'm going to tell you about my current obsession, the Element Chocolate Electrolytes. You drink these hot, like hot chocolate, and I know it sounds weird. I was so skeptical at first, but they are actually incredible. The saltiness adds a savory note that makes it taste way more sophisticated than normal hot chocolate. The flavors are amazing. Chocolate mint is my number one, but chocolate raspberry is a close second, and they hydrate you so much, which I especially love before bed because I get weirdly thirsty, but I don't want to drink too much water and then wake up and have to pee in the middle of the night. Electrolyte and sodium deficiency is actually at the root of many of the problems that even the healthiest eaters and athletes face things like headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. We're always told to just drink water when we have these symptoms, but drinking more water actually makes the problem worse if electrolytes are not also replaced. Hydration is not just about drinking more water. It is critical to hydrate with water plus electrolytes to get to euhydration, which is when we have adequate fluid balance in our bodies, and that's why Element is key for hydration. Each element packet is made with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Element delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes without any sugar, fillers, or artificial coloring. If you want to try Element for yourself, the Liz Moody Podcast listeners can receive a free Element sample pack, which includes one packet of every flavor, including the new chocolate medley, with any order when you order at drinklmnt.com slash Liz. And if you do not love it, Element offers no questions asked refunds on all orders, so there's literally no risk in giving it a shot. That's drinklmnt.com slash Liz for your free sample pack today. 
Is there anything else that we should do if we feel our friend is in a relationship with a narcissist? Don't say that I think your husband's a narcissist or your spouse is a narcissist. Don't say it. Don't call it out. Many people are not ready to hear that. And it can actually lead your friend to isolate further, to pull back, or maybe even defend the relationship. If you feel that they're in something that feels negating and manipulative and invalidating all the stuff that happens in a narcissistic relationship, check in with your friend. Say, hey, are you doing okay? Or it might be that you saw something uncomfortable happen at a party. You might see them crying after a conversation. Check in with them. You might even say something like, yeah, I did see how he talked to you. Like, it wasn't cool. Are you doing okay? And then they may open up. They may be like, yeah, I'm fine. But I promise you, again, it's the seed. The seed in there of somebody from the outside, because your friend is likely having experience that this wasn't okay, but cognitive dissonance and all those things that make us want it to be okay because we want to maintain the status quo, there's sort of a, I don't want to see that. But when somebody isn't saying, you got to see it, but rather, are you okay? And that wasn't okay. It's a way of saying that your internal experience is right without saying it. They will then have that mirror. And over time, it will blossom. Promise. <laughs> Absolutely will. And I think people sometimes hold back because they say, this isn't my business. I say, it's not about it being your business. You don't get in there and say, leave him or end it, or your wife's a narcissist or your partner's a this. It's really the checking in. It's the validation. It's, are you okay? And also, that wasn't okay. That's incredibly helpful. Okay. My second question is, you said that these relationships with narcissists can feel incredibly exciting and powerful and all of these things that we would perceive as good. I've heard you say that the sparks flying can be a sign of trauma mm -hmm. in a relationship. Trauma bonding. Yeah. Trauma mm -hmm. bonding. Can mm -hmm. you explain that a little yeah. bit? So like I said before, narcissistic relationships tend to be a bit of a roller coaster, right? Mask on, mask off. Charming, charismatic, mean, cruel, and invalidating. Charming, charismatic. And so in the beginning of the relationship, you can have periods as long as four or six weeks, sometimes three months, sometimes six months to a year where the person's on. That's that thing we call love bombing, right? That will fall apart, and then you'll go into these up-down cycles. But if a person has had a history of childhood trauma, childhood relationships that had this roller coaster feel, childhood narcissistic relationships like a parent was narcissistic, that can create this kind of schema where up and down is love, chaos is conflated with love, inconsistency is love, and love means. I'm going to win you back. And then, oh, gosh, I got him back. So the up and down gets, again, incorrectly associated with the feeling of love, connection, attachment, and closeness. So what that means is when this whole narcissistic bouncing ball starts, people will describe it as chemistry, as sparks, as electric. This feels so familiar. This feels ancient. It ain't ancient. It is what your poor body is holding from old relationships that were like this, of this chaotic kind of an attachment of, I have to earn love. And once I earn it, I get it. So when people are in these sort of up-down relationships and they're saying, but it feels so exciting, there has to be a lot of education about the why of the exciting. And folks will say the steady relationship, they'll say, I'm kind of not interested. It feels boring. Or we just friends? Maybe this isn't exciting. And it's actually a bit of a white knuckle ride 
to get a client to keep going with the steady as she goes relationship because I'll say almost like this isn't sexy. I'm like, trust me, in the long term, it's going to be real sexy. But no, it's not the roller coaster. But people get conditioned in many ways. But it's not just a conditioning in the mind. It's really held in the body that there is, again, a sense of physiological familiarity that people will feel like there's something I feel in my body. I'm like, yeah, you feel it in your body. It's an echo of what's happened in the past. I also feel like TV and movies contributes to that because Hugely. you need an obstacle to create plot. And so they put these relationships together. Like you can't have Ross and Rachel be like, oh, we love each other. I guess we'll stay together. Right. Everything's right. great. You have yeah. to put these obstacles mm -hmm. in for people to keep watching, which teaches us that we need these dramatic obstacles to have a movie or TV relationship. Well, there's obstacles and there's obstacles, right? All relationships have obstacles, but obstacles that are like, for example, people in trauma-bonded relationships will have the same argument over and over and over and over again. It doesn't get resolved because it's almost like you keep reenacting the same thing. And that's not okay. Arguments are great in relationships. They're healthy. It means you have skin in the game. But then you work the argument through. And yes, there might be the sort of silly, like the towels are on the ground kind of argument. Here we go with the towels. But at some point there's acceptance. I love this person because they're good, kind, respectful. They see me, they get me. I can live with a towel, right? So it's not even an argument anymore as much of an, as an eye roll. But you're absolutely right. The Even the Disney princesses are, it's all about these massive barriers. It's about chaos. It's about sacrifice. I mean, The Little Mermaid is about as dangerous as the story gets. Give everything up and maybe he'll like you. I'm like, homie, how about you move into the ocean and let's see how that works out for you. I'm into that. And also I'm like, Ross and Rachel were talking about being on a break all the time. I feel like that's the repeated argument. Perhaps that was a trauma bond. Mm -hmm. I think so. I do think it was a trauma bond. Constantly, we were breaking up, getting together, breaking up, getting together. Trauma bond. Are Monica and Chandler okay in your eyes? I still think there was probably a bit more chaos there than there should have been. I really do. I mean, I, and I think you're absolutely right. If it was steady as she goes, we wouldn't have watched the show. And that's the problem is that TV relationships are entertaining, rom-com relationships are entertaining, but it's not the stuff of life of the person who's going to stay up all night with an infant or help you nurse a puppy or wipe your butt when you're 85 years old. But those are the messages we're internalizing all day, long, all day long since as long as we can remember. So how do we overcome the feeling that this realer love is boring? That's a tough one. So keep in mind here, not everyone brings in a trauma-bonded history into their adult relationships. There are actually people out there, and it's always amazing for me to see as a shrink because I don't often see them in my office, they don't associate chaos with love. That steady-as-she-goes person, they sometimes meet them as young as 20, and 40 years later, they're still going strong. So it's not a universal phenomenon. I think that that up-downing has a lot to do with early environment, early attachment. So this is why therapy, again, becomes so important of understanding one's attachment style. What is your attachment style? When you do a sort of a post-mortem on your past relationships, what made those work? What made them so exciting? Then it also becomes partly the education. And then, listen, growth only happens when we're uncomfortable. I know nobody wants to hear that, but that's how growth happens. Growth actually hurts, and then it's growth, right? That's what happens. Having to give in to that idea of the steady relationship, which will feel uncomfortable for a while. I'm not telling people to endure something that doesn't feel good, but that it's not abusive. They look forward to seeing the person and they feel respected and they feel held and they feel valued, but they'll say, oh, I don't feel a za-za-zoo. 
I will ask my clients, do you look forward to seeing them? They'll say, yeah, I actually do. We have such a good time, but it's not crazy. So you definitely are looking to see that the fundamentals are good. It's then it's the work on, let me try steady, boring, call it what you will. Even as an experiment. As an experiment. And so be curious, right? Being curious is everything. So be curious about what steady feels like and pay attention to how it feels. And sometimes people will say, yeah, I had to kind of come around the bend on that. And sadly, some folks who do have trauma-bonded histories really have to go through it. They have to go through the up-down, chaotic, harmful relationship to recognize, I don't want to do that again. And will often have to remind themselves, wait a minute, just when I think this is boring, I need to remember what that felt like, what being cheated on felt like, what being betrayed felt like, what being insulted felt like. Yeah, no thanks. You have to remind yourself. Hmm. Okay. So rolling back, are we born a narcissist? Do we become narcissistic because of our childhood? What's happening there? Yeah, no, it's not inborn. If you want to make that argument, all babies are narcissistic. (laughs) Feed me when I want, change me when I want, right? So that infantile narcissism, sure. But no, nobody's born narcissistic. It is a social developmental process. It happens through how people's early lives unfold. People may become narcissistic. They're sort of like the dark path, if you will, and that's chaos adversity, neglect, abuse, invalidation, you know, parental cruelty and insulting and all that, that can certainly set a person up to become narcissistic, especially if it interacts with a person's temperament. We do know that children with more challenging, difficult temperaments, difficult to soothe, very attention-seeking, can't sit still. They're a handful. Can be great kids, obviously, but they're a handful. And they often have a lot more invalidating experiences with the world. That kind of tough temperament, especially if they are growing up in a very invalidating setting, that can very much be a path towards narcissism. But there's another path too. And it's more of the spoiled child path. The child is told, you're the most special child. You're absolutely exceptional. You're more special than any other child. You're smarter than all the other kids. You're the best. You'll always be the best. That golden child, special, 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 that can also lead to narcissism. And if a person is a narcissistic parent, they may also be mimicking or mirroring what they see. They see the parent screaming at the server, screaming at the teacher, screaming at the soccer coach. That also becomes normalized. They see their parent, we don't wait in line. People like us don't wait in line. Here's what you got to remember though, whether we're talking about that adversity path, whether we're talking about that spoiled child path, whether we're talking about the having the narcissistic parent and mirroring them path, most people who grow up in those circumstances don't become narcissistic. Does that make sense? So it's a story we can tell backwards. Show me a narcissistic adult. I promise you it was one of those paths. Show me a person experiencing one of those paths. I'm not going to take the bet. I have many, many clients who've grown up in those ways. They've gone through horrific trauma, the most compassionate empathic human beings you'd ever want to know. But they had very sweet temperaments too. We'll even try to do a deep dive. They'll try to reach old family members and they will say, you're an absolute sweetheart from the day you came along. So no matter all these terrible things were done to them. And still we see that gentle person still peering out of, there may be complex trauma, there may be all of those things, but they're definitely not narcissistic. Is there anything that's within our control that can take us from 
being raised with those types of circumstances, but not developing a narcissistic personality outside of like, you have your temperament, but that's not something that you can control as much. Is there anything we could actively do to change where we fall on the narcissism spectrum? There would have to be an awareness that you need to do that, right? So that's the biggest problem with narcissism. It's the lack of self-awareness. It's the inaccurate self-appraisal. So you now need the narcissistic person to say, mm, I don't want to be like this. I'm going to have to be better. That's a unicorn, right? Anyone who was raised by narcissistic parents, under conditions of adversity, being told you were all that and nobody's all that, frankly, anybody could certainly you know, do the work, understand how that's affected their sense of self. But in the case of a person who's narcissistic, they have to even see not only that there's a link, but there's a point in changing. And they don't see that. Universally? Pretty universally. Again, lack of self-awareness is a big part of it. So narcissistic people typically don't show up in therapy. When they do, and they do, I've worked with tons of narcissistic clients, when they do, the reason a lot of people show up in therapy, stuff in their life isn't going the way they want. They didn't get the promotion. The spouse insists or a partner insists on it. Family insists on it. They may have uh, developed addiction issues, which is not uncommon in narcissistic folks. They may be anxious or depressed, again, because things aren't going their way. That's what they roll into therapy with. The therapist, well-intentioned, acts on that depression, anxiety. Why isn't life going my way? And they do it for weeks, weeks months, year, we're not making any progress. And you're like, maybe I'm a bad therapist. That's what happens to a lot of therapists working with these folks. Depression, six to nine weeks, you will make progress. You will see the progress. If in six to nine weeks, the client is still moaning and groaning and, and you're like, you might have even tried medication and nothing's making a dent, one of the hypotheses does have to be, is the narcissism operating here, chronically feeling victimized, nothing's ever going my way. Tell me the quick way forward. Why is someone as nice as me having to suffer like this? And when I start hearing that stuff, I'm like, ooh, I see what I'm dealing with. And it wasn't just the depression. They can be depressed, don't get me wrong. But the depression we can address. The narcissism, not so much. But the narcissistic person isn't coming into therapy saying, I'm really not a nice person. I'm hurting everyone. I want this to stop. I really want to be a good person. The unicorn of unicorns, does that happen sometimes? Absolutely, especially with more content out there. I think more folks are saying, I'm seeing a lot of this stuff in me. I'm even seeing how it's blown up my life. I don't want to be this person. It's pretty rare. And the problem is, is that in some ways, narcissism is an issue of regulation. So the ability, when something goes wrong, the most important thing we can do is regulate it. Like we can't go punch a wall because we didn't get what we want. We can't scream at someone because we didn't get what we want. We have to learn to breathe and say, let me find what tools I have to cope with this disappointment, whatever that looks like. Take a nap, go to therapy, journal, exercise, listen to music. The long list we all have in our phones of what can I do when I'm not well, breathe, all meditate. That's very difficult for people with these personalities. And so a narcissistic person may go through therapy. They may learn anger management. They may learn other people actually have feelings. Other people's feelings are important. They may even be able to pull it out for a while. And then life happens. They don't get the promotion again. They don't close the sale. Their friend buys a bigger boat than them, whatever it is, and they snap again. 
and they're not able to do that regulation because they experience that ego injury. So, and the other problem we also have with narcissism is a lot of them will hold a grandiose conception of their childhood. They'll actually kind of almost make up a story about their childhood that's not true. And what gets interesting is having done this work with many clients, they'll be depicting this childhood that almost sounds like otherworldly, but then they'll drop things in. I'm like, this is not otherworldly. This was rough. And if you try to go in too quick and say, hey, you know, you were telling me when you were young and your dad did that, whatever, da, da, da. They'll say, hey, yo, yo, my dad's a good guy. What are you saying? Why? Because dad's an extension of them, even if their dad was a monster. So it's very hard sometimes to chip into what those origins look like. One thing that's interesting is narcissistic people who have more of that sort of trauma adversity origin story, they're better candidates for therapy because we can do trauma-informed work with them. We really can. And we can do work like folks like Janina Fisher does, like really doing that parts work, helping them understand how they get overwhelmed by threats in their environment. You can do some decent work there. You really, really can. If they get too vulnerable, sometimes they'll continue to keep striking. But from a therapist chair, you can move the needle with the folks of that background. Sometimes it's not enough to fix a relationship, but with the spoiled child people, not a chance. You are not making a dent there. Never, never, ever. That's so interesting. Okay, we'll get into like, so I'm in a relationship with the narcissist. What do I do in a second? But I just want to make sure that people are identifying as best they can the narcissist in their life. So I would love to just have like a one sentence explanation of what narcissism shows up like in practice. And I'm going to give you a variety of situations. So at work, how do we know we're dealing with a narcissist? They'll saunter into the meeting late or they will interrupt everyone and talk over them at the meeting. In dating? In the first month of the relationship, they will be absolutely dazzling. But the first time things don't go their way, like they have to wait in line or the reservation gets messed up, they start screaming at the host. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. 
That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. If you listen to the Skincare Secrets episode of the podcast, then you know it is so important to find SLS-free household cleaning products and laundry soap, especially if you want to keep your skin eczema and dermatitis free or if you suffer from any skin irritation. And the doctor on that episode recommended Branch Basics. Branch Basics makes non-toxic, hypoallergenic household cleaning products that are free of fragrances, hormone disruptors, and harmful preservatives. They're baby, kid, and pet safe, which is so important to us with our Queen Bella around. The idea of her getting anything toxic on her little paws and then licking them devastates me. They are always clean and cost-effective. And I feel better when I clean. I used to always get a headache, even from the natural fragrances and other cleansers, and I have zero reaction to Branch Basics. One thing I really love about Branch Basics is that they operate on a refill model, which is where you're really able to save money, as well as the planet. When you run out of a product, all you have to do is repurchase the concentrate and the oxygen boost, and then you follow the recipes on the glass bottles that you've saved from before to recreate the products that you need. It is absolutely brilliant. They also just work really well. I was honestly really skeptical about this. I was like, okay, it all sounds good, but do they actually work? Because you're using one concentrate in different ratios to make all of your cleaning products. But everything in my house is absolutely sparkly. It is so clean. And my laundry has actually never looked or smelled fresher. Their premium starter kit will provide you with everything you need to replace all of your toxic cleaning products in your home, like laundry detergent, streak-free glass spray, bathroom cleaner, and more. I have loved using Branch Basics cleaning products in my home, and I am so excited that I get to share the squeaky clean love with the Liz Moody Podcast listeners. Save 15% and get free shipping on your starter kit when you use code LizMoody at www.branchbasics.com. Again, that is code Liz Moody for 15% off plus free shipping when you purchase a starter kit at branchbasics.com. Is there anything that we can look for in dating profiles that would be a red flag for narcissism? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I often tell folks the more curated, like the more almost too good to be true their dating profile looks like, like, here's me saving elephants. Here's me skiing the Alps. Here's me going to the moon. I'm like, mm, no, it's too much, too much happening here. It's hard though, because people want to put their best foot forward. Right. So I kind of respect people who put their me. me foot <laughs> Look for the gems that could be polished in person or something Yeah. Like or, that. you know, I think that if it feels like too much. And especially if there's a lot of that aspirational bro talk, like trying to live my best life and living at large, being strong, meditating every day. Okay. In long-term relationships, what's a sign we're dealing with a narcissist? I would say in long-term relationships, you're starting to see the selfishness, the gaslighting, invalidation, and tantrums when they don't get their way. In parent-child relationships. So is this from the perspective of the child? Or I think the of parent? the child. Okay. It would be a parent who will leave a child feeling selfish if the child is voicing a need or a want. Really, like, Mommy's very busy. Do you really think it's fair that you'd ask that? What about in adult children <laughs> of adult parents? I did so much for you. So it's a lot of guilting. I did so much for you and you can't show up to Thanksgiving the way I want, do this for me, do that for me, or everything you've become. Well, I hope you know who's responsible for that. 
It's so interesting. This is something I talk about with my friends all the time is navigating what do we owe our parents. Mm -hmm. And I think what like you owe them showing up at Thanksgiving, you owe them, this is the least you can do for them, et cetera. Or is it not? Are we meant to be living our independent lives? We didn't choose to be born, et cetera. I think it's a really tricky thing to navigate. I think it's a tricky thing to navigate. But here's the thing. If it feels like a reciprocal, mutual, supportive relationship where you can show up as your authentic self, you're going to want to go to Thanksgiving. It's about the wanting to versus the having to. In friendship. In friendship, it's the friend who will use you as their therapist and talk to you three hours a day about their breakup for two months. But the minute you pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm going through something, they'll say they're too busy. That's interesting. Do you think that social media culture is increasing the rate of narcissism in our society? I think what social media culture is doing is it's giving the narcissistic folks a platform. I think in people who are already vulnerable and sort of leaning in the narcissistic direction, it's the wind that pushes the boat. Does that make sense? But you're not going to take a great, sweet, empathic person and turn them narcissistic with social media. We're seeing in the social media literature, it's actually quite interesting. It's not as simple as social media bad. It's with a more vulnerable person, there's much more negative effects of social media, right? So is it, there is somebody who might be already going through something is more negatively impacted. So I think that people who are using it for validation seeking, I'll never forget the date. It was back in like 2007 or so. And I was already doing this work. And somebody had called me up and said, have you heard of this thing called Facebook? I'm like, Facebook? I, I'm old enough that a Facebook once upon a time was the guide they'd give you That's in college. That's what the name's based on. Yeah, yeah, right. So I said, Facebook, what are you talking about? Like from college? And they're like, no, no, no. It's a social media site. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. So they said, no, no, you should sign up, get an account. So I make an account. And I'll always, it's one of those moments in your life you'll never forget. I feel like when you're going to throw up and like my throat went down and I thought, oh my God all the narcissistic people are going to be able to get validation and they don't need to leave the house. Once upon a time to be a validated narcissist, you had to dress up. You had to go to the bar. You had to go to the restaurant. You had to have a party. How were you going to get it otherwise? Now you didn't need to leave your house. And I'm like, this is going to be a disaster. It's been a disaster. Well, that's what I was wondering is if because we are pedestalizing this group of people who's thriving on social media, if we're essentially pedestalizing more narcissists on a societal yeah, level, are. and then more people, I think like 47% of Gen Z wants to be a social media influencer. So are we pedestalizing things that increase narcissism? Yeah, we are. We are pedestalizing status seeking. We're pedestalizing validation seeking. We're pedestalizing superficiality. We're pedestalizing vanity. We're pedestalizing, how do I put this? Lack of depth. Yeah. Lack of nuance. Mm -hmm. Lack yeah. of nuance. Lack yeah. of critical thinking. Yeah. 100%. Okay. So some of those examples that I shared are pretty much relationships where you don't have a lot of choice, although I feel like you might tell me you do have more choices than you think. So like at work, your boss is a narcissist, your colleague is a narcissist, you've identified this, but you need your job. What do you do? So what you've got to do is figure out what workarounds are available to you. One thing I tell anyone who believes they have a narcissistic boss, colleague, anyone, even a direct report, someone who is actually less powered than you in the workplace, document everything. You can make no progress in the workplace without documentation. And that means saving every text, every email, every voicemail, making copious notes after meetings, making sure you have lots of uh, documentation on outcomes, metrics, whatever. If you need to do something about it, you've got it. And in some ways, it helps you feel sane. Number two, seek out allyship. Don't gossip. 
but like find your people in the workplace because if it's a big enough place, you might find your people or find mentorship or allies outside of that workplace. A good mentor might tell you like, no, this isn't cool. And then make sure you document your work product because it's narcissistic people will happily take credit for your work. So make sure it's very clear what you're doing, what you're responsible for. So somebody can't just take it away from you. And if none of that is working and it's starting to take a toll on your health, you may have to start a job search. I say this as somebody who's left more a couple of jobs long-term where I work with narcissistic folks. I'm like, this is taking a toll on me and it's limiting me. It's clipping my wings. And so try the other things and, and try the workarounds and do the best you can. I hate to say it, that once you have a critical mass of narcissistic people in a workplace, they're often going to outlast you. And so sticking around thinking maybe they'll leave, probably not. And you might end up wasting even more years. But it gets tricky if people are sort of vested in a company or have a pension or benefits. I understand that. I'm not saying it flippantly. Oh, just quit your job. It's not that. But it may be that for some folks, they'll say, listen, I got three more years and I'm fully pensioned in this job. And one technique people will do is I go in, I clock in, I do my job well, I leave. I'm bummed out because this was my career and I'm not viewing it well, but they will start their own, whatever their side hustles are. They may be hobbies, they may be genuine side hustles, but whatever makes their heart sing, they'll find themselves doing it nights, weekends, finding something, saying, at least I'm engaged in some activity that gives me joy. Are there boundaries we should be setting with people at work to not let that narcissism penetrate our psyche? Listen, once you've been burned by a narcissistic person anywhere, work, family, otherwise, you are more tentative. So be careful with new folks at work, right? It's tempting to fall into the whole gossip train. But when you sense that happening, slowly sort of disengage, not in a judgy way, like, well, I don't gossip, but kind of step a little bit back from that. Don't be too sherry of yourself. Like figure out who the players are in this entire schema because narcissistic people have a very uncanny ability to get a lot of intel on people. They're actually very socially skilled. For how much they're unempathic, they're actually super plugged in to how other people work. And what they're very good at doing is mining other people's vulnerabilities. And they'll get that intel on you. They'll put it in their back pocket. And weeks, months, even years down the road, that stuff may pop up because you shared it with them. So the boundary is to protect, protect yourself. yourself. Yeah, your information, mm -hmm. all of that type of stuff. Okay, parent-child relationships. Let's dive into, I'm an adult. I've realized my mom or dad is a narcissist. What should we be doing in that situation? It's such a painful revelation. I think for a lot of folks, because we maintain that childlike wish of, Someday I'm going to win mommy or daddy over. It's almost as though you're still a 40-year-old bringing your drawing to an uninterested parent. You're like, do you like my picture? It's still the, I got a promotion. Look at my new house. I remember working with one guy who's so successful. He had made, oh my God, I think he'd made literally like five, six hundred million dollars. And he hustled to get there. His mom was very narcissistic. And so he buys her, I don't like a beach house or something like that. And he's like, do you like the house I got you? And you know what she said? She said, well, it'll, you know, like, it's okay. I would have probably done some things differently if you'd let me pick it. It was like watching a little boy bring this little thing he made for her and her just tossing it away. And I'm sure that's what happened to him when he was a little boy. So, and he was still trying to please her in this absolutely extravagant way. So 
I think to recognize that your parent will never be the parent you want means that not only are you grieving the possibility of such a relationship with a parent, you're grieving your entire childhood. Having to find your own voice and identity after having that done to you in adulthood is a lot harder because you never really got to individuate and become autonomous. You were basically told you're in the parent service. You have to be what they need you to be. You have to look the way they need you to look. And if you're not those things, they had no time for you. There's no unconditional love. The stuff we need to feel whole and congruent and healthy, that wasn't there. So to give up on that is probably some of the worst grief I've seen clients have to go through. That makes me want to cry. So grieving is a big part of this process and creating that space to grieve. What do we do in terms of the relationship? Again, this is where radical acceptance, it's not really going to change. Realistic expectations. People will say, I am not walking away from my parents. I'm not. Some people will. Some people have cut their parents out. But a lot of people say, no, I can't. I like some of my siblings. I like other people in my family. Or it's just I feel a sense of duty and obligation. That's okay. That's fine. You have to be clear on that for yourself. Now, if somebody says, I'm going to do the right thing, they'll say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. No, they're not going to see it. That's off the table. If you're doing the duty obligation thing because that feels important to you, then you do it. But it's not on a conditional basis here. And then to have the realistic expectations. If the person who bought the mom a beach house had told me that early enough, I would have said, it's going to be the same as when you were five. And be prepared for that and what that will feel like. So it's really having realistic expectations of none of these patterns are going to change. And whether that means you say, okay, I'm going to visit my parents, but only for two hours, or I'm going to stay in a hotel and I'm not going to stay in their house, or I'm not going to stay all four days of the Thanksgiving weekend. I'm just going to stay for dinner, or I'm going to make a bet with myself or a promise to myself. I'm going to say, if they bring up X, Y, or Z, I'm going to start getting myself out of the situation. So you, the boundaries aren't with your parent. The boundaries are within yourself of what you can and can't tolerate, how much time you can spend. I've known many people who do um, care for older parents. And after all the years of being emotionally abused by the parent, they're the only game in town to support this parent. So they do. And the realistic expectations are this parent won't say thank you. They'll probably devalue your caregiving. And many people have said, listen, I had to realize I'm doing this for me. So when they die, I will at least carry within myself, I did what felt like the right thing for me, whether they never said thank you for it. What if they ask, why are you not staying in my house? Why are you not spending this time mm-hmm. with me? I mean, you're going to have to come up with your sort of white lie because you're certainly not going to say because you're a raging narcissist and I feel terrible when I'm with you, right? It would be appealing to say that. And listen, I tell folks this, there's no programming here. If you say, I've had it with this person, they need to know. They need to know the harm they've done. Go for it. Go for it. Now, you want to be aware of, is this going to ruin someone else's holiday? Maybe I won't do this at my cousin's wedding. Like, choose your time, choose your space. But some people will say, if I lose them over this, then I lose them over this. I've spoken my truth. I respect that. Some people say, I don't want to blow this up, so I'm going to say something to them like, da-da-da, I'm allergic to your cat, or it turns out I have an early morning meeting tomorrow, or whatever it may be that you come up with a thing. They're still going to go after you. 
there's no version of this where they don't attack you. So don't think that that's going to be taken off the table. But it could be an excuse that feels like, okay, at least they'll, you know, I've given them something that they can chew on, but they're still going to criticize you. That's the realistic expectations. And what do we do with that? What do we do with the guilt that that will likely stir up? I always say when people say they feel guilty, I'm saying, what did you do wrong? You know, let's start there. What was the wrong thing you did? And also, I didn't go to dinner. I'm like, okay, is that all it was? And then really say, you didn't go to dinner with somebody who has been commenting on your weight from the minute you walked in the door. Help me out with the guilt here. The vast majority of people out in the world are not doing intentionally cruel things. They're not. As much as it feels like that in the news, they really aren't. So we often feel guilty when what we're doing is taking care of ourselves. Yes, that is such a powerful sentiment. You've mentioned radical acceptance a few times. Can you give us some very pragmatic ways mm -hmm. that we can practice that? Mm -hmm. The most simple way is this relationship is never going to change. It's always going to be this, okay? And that's a question I've put to hundreds of clients over the years where I've said, if I were to tell you the way it is, is always going to be this way, the way they treat you and the way they are, what are you going to do? And a lot of people are like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait, wait, you're telling me this is always going to be this. And a lot of them will say, can I get back to you on that? Some people say, I'm out. If that's the case, I'm not doing this anymore. I didn't realize it was always going to be like this. And some, they're very, very decisive. Some people will say, we'll literally slide into a depression and they'll be stricken with grief. You know, other people will make bargains like, okay, maybe, mm, and so I call it going into the tiger's cage. I'm like, go back into the cage, see what happens. See if the tiger is just going to nestle up on your lap. They're going to pull your other arm off too, but maybe you got to have both your arms, both your legs pulled off before you realize that this is what this is. So it's really about this is not going to change is number one. Another big piece of radical acceptance is that it's not just about the narcissist isn't going to change, but that this is going to feel bad. To set a limit, to step away, to disengage, even if a person doesn't end the relationship, is a radical acceptance is that this is not going to feel good. There's no version of this that feels good. And I think a lot of people will think, well, maybe if I set the boundaries and I do the this and it'll all be like, there's it's all some tidy, neat little self-help guide. I'm like, no, 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 this is going to hurt. It's like surgery. The doctor tells you, when you come out of that anesthesia, you are going to be in pain and you're going to be in pain for about six weeks. You're still going to be in pain, but you're like, thanks for letting me know because I cleared out and I'm not going to work and all that other stuff. So it's being prepared for the radical acceptance that whatever decision you make to stay or go, to disengage, it's going to hurt. And by then you're prepared. It's almost like your fists are up. You're prepared for what's coming at you. And you're like, okay, I can do this. And then sometimes it's not as bad as people necessarily think, but they don't think it's going to be easy. That's what radical acceptance is. This isn't going to change. So I have got to I'll give you the simplest way to think of this. If somebody lived in Chicago and it was February and they walked out of their apartment in a bikini and flip-flops and they're like, I can't believe it's so cold out here. I'm going to freeze to death. I'm like, it's February in Chicago. It's the same thing. These relationships are February in Chicago. Like, don't walk out of your house in a bathing suit. You are going to freeze to death. There's no version of February in Chicago being 80 degrees, maybe with climate change, but I'm going with no. It's that, that this is what the weather is. This is what the climate is. This is how it's going to be. Someone, to give you sort of an actionable piece, one thing I do tell folks to do 
is keep lists. And the hardest list of all is something I call the ick list, but everything that went wrong in the world, every terrible thing that happened, cheated on me, lied to me, borrowed money, didn't give it back, humiliated me in front of my friends, uh, made terrible comments about my child, whatever it is, on and on and on. Most people come up with dozens, if not hundreds of things. It's an uncomfortable list to make, but when people make that and they're wavering and they go back and look at that list, they're like, oh yeah. And that can really, really firm up the radical acceptance. And the radical acceptance, it sounds like that conversation is going to be really helpful if you are, let's say, in a relationship, in a long-term relationship with a narcissist and you're asking yourself, should I stay or should I go? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's any universal wisdom there? Like if you are sitting here, you're listening, you're like, my partner is a narcissist. Would you generally say one should exit that relationship? Okay. What would you say? I would say, okay, so now you know that and you know it's not likely to change, what do you want to do? And we lay it out. It's a problem to be solved. It's also a feeling to be had. And for a lot of clients, they'll say, in your body, how does that feel when you know this is always going to be this way? And usually people feel sick. Like, I feel like I'm going to throw up. My head hurts. I feel really sad. They'll cry sometimes. But they'll be so grateful because they're being told, okay, now I know how to pack for this trip. Okay, somebody's saying, hey, let's go on a vacation. Where are we going? Not going to tell you. What am I supposed to put in this suitcase? Now we're saying, now you know what to do, what this means. Person might say, this person's going to eviscerate me in court. They're going to mess with me around custody. So, and they're right. And family court is not going to be your friend. So they'll say, I'm going to wait till my youngest child turns 18. That's fine. Other people say, I signed a prenup and I will be on the street if I leave this person. Okay, then you may not want to do that. Other people will say, let me do this six months at a time. Now that I know what it is, let me see what the next six months feels like. Listen, there's people out there who are in relationships with, I mean, narcissistic people are are pretty regularly unfaithful. So they're with somebody who's been regularly unfaithful and say, okay, let me see how I feel knowing that they are going to keep cheating on me. And instead of making it my life's work to try to hack into their phone, I'm going to radically accept that this person, when he goes on a business trip, is cheating on me. And it's no longer what's wrong with me, that this is a what's wrong with him. We work on that. I mean, infidelity, the responsibility for that lies with the person who's breached the trust, not the person who's being betrayed. There's no responsibility shifting there. So some of those shifts in cognition, those shifts in feeling, some people will say, no, this feels gross. I don't want to stay with the cheater. And some people will say, I've got a rhythm here. I see this for what it is. And I'm going to stay till my kids are a certain age, or I'm going to stay until I've got something figured out or whatever it may be. There's a lot of pragmatism in this as well. Outside of pragmatism, are there ever people who are just like, well, I love them. Like, I know that they're doing this shit thing, but I love them. And I wish I didn't. They will say they love them. And I'll say, so talk to me about that love. And when people tell me, when they're being harmed by someone, they tell me, I love them. I'll say, tell me what you love about them. And they will give me answers like, I don't know how to describe it. Like, it's this feeling. It's this connection. It's magic. I'm like, er, wrong answer. This was a healthy relationship. You know what you'd be saying? When I ask healthy people this question, they'll say, oh, what do I love about them? 
I love that they love to snuggle in on Sunday mornings. I love that they bring me my tea in the morning. I love that they are interested in what I do. I love how they parent. I love spending time with them. I feel safe with them. That's what healthy people say. But when people give you these gobbledygook, it's a magical connection. I can't describe it. I feel like I'm so alive and like I can't live without them. That's trauma bond talk. Then that's another way I feel like we're being screwed over mm -hmm. by the narratives that's that we're told. Yeah, this whole magical nonsense. Magic is not what gets people over a finish line. It's I feel safe. I feel seen. I feel heard. We share values. They see something in me that I don't even see in myself. And I see it in them. And I just simply love being with them. Give me those answers. I'll buy that. That's never the answer I'm getting from the person who says, but I love them. One of the top questions I get is what I use for birth control after making the switch from hormonal options. And I will not stop singing from the rooftops about my absolute love for the Natural Cycles app. It's changed my life so much to have a completely non-hormonal, non-invasive form of birth control, which I never thought was possible. I've gotten my libido back, my anxiety has gone significantly down, and while I'm not anti-hormonal birth control by any means, I'm just so happy this option exists. Natural Cycles is a leading women's health company that created the world's first FDA-cleared birth control app. The app's algorithm uses hormone-driven changes in body temperature to let users know when they're fertile or not fertile. It's 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use. The app uses a color-coded system, and every day, based on your temperature, you'll get red or green days if you're in Natural Cycles birth control mode. Red days mean you're fertile and you should abstain or use protection. Green means that you are good to go at it however you would like. I love Natural Cycles because it's grounded in research. There is a proven connection between body temperature and ovulation. Right before ovulation, progesterone levels start to rise, and progesterone actually increases your body temperature. This change in body temperature is what the app's algorithm looks for to let users know when they're fertile or not fertile. It's really different than just taking your own temperature and tracking. Your temperature is going into an algorithm developed by a female physicist, Alina, who was on the team that discovered the Higgs boson particle, which led to the Nobel Prize for Physics. And they're doing a bunch of crazy science to make the predictions way more accurate than what we can do at home. We're all different, so I think it's important to be aware of all of the options out there when it comes to something as personal as birth control. I have loved using Natural Cycles as my preferred birth control method, so I am thrilled that listeners of the Liz Moody podcast can get to try it for themselves. You can use code Liz at naturalcycles.com to get 15% off an annual subscription plus a free thermometer or go to naturalcycles.app slash Liz. Again, that is code Liz at naturalcycles.com. Natural Cycles is for 18 and over and does not protect against STIs. And then I'm noticing that my instinct is to say, but I'm sure if I push them to get into therapy, if I can do something to create this awareness within them, to give them the tools that they need, they will change. I'd like you to be extremely clear about the possibility of that being true. Very low. Less than 5%. And here's the point about the change. Anyone can change, right? I could decide to lose weight and lose five pounds. Am I going to notice the change? No, not going to notice. It's not going to change my clothes fit. It's not going to change my appearance. It's a change, right? So by the time a narcissistically abusive relationship has really done its harms, even when there is therapy, those betrayals and wounds 
often won't heal and the amount of change isn't sufficient, right? There's change and there's change. The change a therapist might log as like a significant change, a partner may not experience, right? It's very different to be in a room with someone for 50 minutes than it is day in and day out, 168 hours a week, to be with someone in a household with all the stuff that comes from it. There's a phenomenon in narcissistic relationships called future faking, where narcissistic people Let's say they do get caught in cheating, lying, doing something bad. And they'll say, no, 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 listen, I'll change, I'll change. You know what? You're right. I'm going to get into therapy. I'm going to change. I'm going to change. But you know what? I can't change overnight. Give me six months. I'm going to turn things around. So you stay around for six months. I'll take that bet. And I'm taking that bet as no way. No one, there's no way someone who is that deeply narcissistic could do that much of a turnaround in six months. Now, in six months, this is why I'm saying everyone is different. For some people... They may say, he still cheats on me, still lies to me, but he stopped yelling at me. I can live with that. Okay, I don't judge that. You need to know what your limits are. Some people will say, I will put up with anything, but as soon as you cheat on me, it's done. So they put up with verbal abuse. They put up with yelling. They put up with lying. They put up with invalidation, but the dude never cheats. So if you're going to stay in a relationship with a narcissistic person, whether that is continuing a relationship with a parent, continuing a relationship with a friend, a long-term partner, a boss, you cannot do that with any idea that they're going to change. Nope. That's the realistic expectations. Now I know what I'm dealing with. Because people exhaust themselves. They exhaust themselves thinking, this person, I can do X, Y, and Z, and they're going to be different. Imagine you've lifted all that exhaustion out of the equation. You're no longer wasting your time doing that stuff. You're like, okay, this is what I got. Okay, I'm going to ask a few listener questions. Can a narcissist parent truly love their child? It's more of a philosophical than a psychological question. Love is very subjective. You and I define it differently. And everyone who is listening to this podcast defines it differently. So I don't think that a parent who invalidates their child, who doesn't see their child as a whole person, who negates their needs, who shames their needs, who loves them conditionally. That doesn't feel like love to me. That's how I, Dr. Romani, define it. That's how that parent thinks they love their child. I gave you a house. I put a roof over your head, feed you. I don't beat you. What more do you want? That's many times what these parents will say. But as soon as love becomes conditional, I don't know how much it's love anymore. Well, and I'm feeling like this is a child of a narcissistic parent asking this question. And I feel like what they want is reassurance that like, did their parent love them in the best way that they were capable of loving them? The parent believed they loved the child. They really did. If you ask a narcissistic parent, they will truly say it and they will believe it. And I think it's a very, it's a position of grace to say, I know this parent did about the best they could do. Now, really, again, it's a spectrum of abuse. For some people, it is that negation, cruelty, mean comments. For some people, it's it's much more horrific abuse. And some people say, I can't forgive that. One thing I will say is forgiveness is very, very personal. And I don't think it's ever to be mandated. And some people never get there. And that's okay. Forgiveness is not essential to healing. And you don't need to berate yourself. Nothing's wrong with you if you can't forgive this person. Forgiveness means that you have let go of all resentment. That's the definition. If you still resent them, you haven't forgiven them. And that's okay because what they did was resentable. How can you gently point out the narcissistic tendencies of somebody that you care about? I go back to my point of start with empathy. 
right? You can go in there gently and say, hey, can we try that again? Okay. Or gosh, I know it's been a tough day and that hurt me. Now, here's what's tough. Goes back to that tiger's cage. Going in there, if you try to point it out, more often than not, they're going to lash back. They will either gaslight, they will deflect, they will shift blame, they will not take responsibility. That's going to be the modal response. But, I mean, you can try. One thing that sometimes people try to do is say, hey, you know, the way you said that to them, do you think they might have been hurt? If you're going to point something out to a narcissist, though, the best advice I could give you is don't do it while anyone else is around. Narcissistic people are very sensitive to shame. So if other people are seeing them be critiqued or berated or not even berated, given a teeny tiny bit of feedback, that will be shaming for them. So if you're going to give them any kind of feedback, do it in private. The problem is, it's again, this is why it's all a catch-22. If you do it in private, they're going to be more likely to lash out at you because they don't have eyes on them, watching them be mean to you. You kind of can't win. My therapist says that if I'm even wondering if I'm a narcissist, I probably am not because narcissists don't tend to have I that type of self-awareness. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's two ways I'm going to view that. The one is your therapist stance, which I agree with, which is if a person's even wondering like, oh, I am I not empathic enough? Am I entitled? Then that really means that this person's like thought about it and doesn't want to be that. And is if you're being that self-reflective, you're probably not narcissistic. But there's another line to this is a person thinking they're narcissistic because of the traits like grandiosity, like I'm the best. I guess I'm narcissistic, aren't I? Then yeah, you are. So it really comes down to how much they're viewing it as that kind of armchair view of narcissism as somebody who's arrogant and stuck up and thinks they're the real deal kind of thing. If they're that person, they may actually be narcissistic. Like, yeah, I'm a narcissist. I'm the best. So yeah, I guess that makes me a narcissist. That's a problem. The version your therapist brings up is of a person wondering, like, am I am I cold? Am I mean? Am I this? Am I that? It's truly self-reflective. Then no, probably not. Well, I think there's a lot of confusion about what is self-confidence, especially for women where confident traits are often taken negatively. They're bossy. They're narcissistic. So I think people are trying to navigate when is it narcissism and when is it me having yeah. proper self-esteem. There's this whole argument is, is there a thing called healthy narcissism versus pathological narcissism? I don't like the term healthy narcissism because by definition, somebody who's entitled and arrogant and lacks empathy, that's never going to be a healthy state, right? So you're absolutely right in the sense of women who are assertive and make their needs known. We've been so socialized that if you're a woman who makes needs known, sets a limit or boundary, takes care of yourself, that you are selfish, that you're putting yourself first, that you're some sort of selfish feminist or some such nonsense that's being put out there. So I think that's, again, a socialization issue of thinking that if you do do the things you need to do or are ambitious or something, but but you're internalizing the way the culture pathologizes that. There's a risk in that, but that's almost a different conversation. But then there can be the sense of women saying, well, I do put my career first. And sometimes like I miss my kid's school play because I had to go on a business trip. Maybe I'm narcissistic. Well, no, you're in a world that where we can't do everything at the same time. And so again, it becomes a nuanced conversation. Like you said, we've lost nuance in the world that we live in. But in general, if you're not hurting other people. If you're not hurting other people. 
Yeah. So here's what's interesting. If you had a person who says, I'm all about work. I love work. I work like a monk. I lock myself up. And because of that, I've decided not to get married and not have kids or not get into a long-term relationship and have kids because that wouldn't be right. I know what I need. I have to have a very strict routine in the morning. I do enjoy my friends. But their friends are very nice, but they're very strict about all their stuff. They're clear on that. And they've literally made choices in their lives where they're not affecting other people. Is that person narcissistic because they're so about doing their own thing? I don't think I would argue that they were. There's a self-awareness of the person saying, I don't think I'm made for this because I know what I need and I don't have the time and the, or the interest in doing those things. That's what I'm saying. That's the knowing yourself. And narcissistic people notoriously don't know themselves, right? They'll pursue a goal, not because they're interested in the goal, but because they think the goal will make them look good. Which brings us back to the point of if you are even questioning if you're a narcissist, you probably are not a narcissist. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Okay. Can you leave us with just one message, something that you hope we can all internalize about feeling the best that we can in a world where we are guaranteed going to be interacting mm -hmm. with these narcissists? Mm -hmm. For all the time that you're putting into being careful about what you eat and going to exercise and doing daily practices like meditation and get enough sleep, all the effort you put into that, is you could even put a tiny bit of that around curating who you let into your world. You're careful about everything you might put in your body, and yet you might let someone near you who's so poisonous that they leave you doubting yourself in every fundamental way. It's pretty, like the equivalent of eating uranium. So if you can be careful about that other stuff, can you give yourself to be more discerning about who you let into that inner sanctum that is you. It's like the fifth time I've almost burst into applause. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. Do you want to take a second to spotlight anything that you're working on, mm -hmm. things that you yeah. want people to know? I'd love to share my new book, It's Not You. Very proud of this because most books about narcissism are about the narcissists. And this is a book I give them one or two chapters just to make sure we're on the same page, but this is really a book about healing from these relationships, taking yourself back, and really putting yourself as the center of your story, not in a selfish way, but that it's okay to be you. It's okay to distance from people who are harming you. So it's a book about healing, and we don't talk enough about that. We're so curious about the narcissistic folks. We don't stop to really ask the questions of, what does this do to me? And how do I take myself back? My new book is about how do you self take yourself back. So everybody, please buy it, read it, because if you've ever been through even one of these relationships, it could be a game changer. It's an incredible book. I was telling you before we started recording how incredibly comprehensive I found it. And just really like it felt like a textbook, but written in this incredibly accessible, fun to read way. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that because it was a true labor of love. And it's not just what I wrote, but the privilege of bringing in the story of thousands of survivors into that book. This isn't just a technical book. These are the tears of many but more important than that, the triumphs of people I've seen turn their lives around and do remarkable things. It's amazing to see someone who has been constrained their whole life finally get to take their wingspan out to full volume. It is the most beautiful thing in the world to find someone really finally leaning into their authenticity. And I've seen people do it when they were in their 80s, and it's magnificent. Can I ask you just a really quick question about the idea of it's not you? Mm-hmm. A lot of people can get over, like, that's their problem, that's their side of the street, but we still feel a lot of shame around, well, I picked them. Yeah. 
Do you have any advice for that just briefly? I want to go back to your point about how we're socialized, right? Someone comes towards you and they're charming, charismatic, confident, successful, and attractive. Please show me the fairy tale that tells us that that is not the person you're supposed to be interested in. And then when you add into that, that this person, especially in the early weeks, months, sees you like you've never been seen before, is almost obsessed with you. And especially if you have a history where a parent wasn't that interested in you and this person's like, and they're charming and confident and charismatic and curious and all of that, who's going to say no? I would be so struck if somebody put a chocolate cake in front of you and be like, and you haven't eaten in two days or a great pizza, you haven't eaten in two days and, and you don't touch it. Who does that? I think that the challenge is, is that we have to learn that we can't get so snowed by that stuff that we lose track of, is this healthy? Am I really being seen here? And what core wounds are being activated that I'm actually not seeing this clearly? This is why people need to understand what this is, what these patterns are, so they can say, whoa, 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 that's not okay the way they yelled at that server or that they were yelling at me because I was 10 minutes. Like that wasn't okay. And to know that wasn't okay, our tendency is to make excuses. So I wrote that book and I do this work. I think we have this whole narrative that, oh, these really vulnerable, weak, sad people fall for narcissists. Hell no. The number of people I've met who said, I was at the top of my game when I met this person. I was happy. I was living in this great place and I was in this great job and I was on this track. Like I loved my life when I met them. So these aren't just shrinking violets, not by any stretch. And we have to break out of that. Every single one of us is vulnerable. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You're incredible. Ross and Rachel, the little mermaid. Honestly, once you realize how prevalent the societal messaging is that glorifies these types of toxic relationships, it is wild. Like, I get it. We need to make interesting television, but it's also just so fascinating since these are the messages that we are subconsciously internalizing for our entire lives. I hope that you found all of Dr. Romani's amazing information interesting. If you did, please share this episode on social media. Send it to a friend or a family member. It could be a really interesting conversation starter for some very necessary conversations. Or rate and review the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Those are all amazing ways to support the podcast, and they are so, so appreciated. If someone shared a link with you and you are new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you will see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. Also, Apple just did an annoying update. So if you follow the podcast there, even if you have been following it for a while, go to that little button in the top right of the page that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes and click turn on automatic downloads so the podcast will keep showing up in your feed. That way you will not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday and now every other Monday too, which is so exciting. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including one of my favorite advice episodes that I have ever recorded. It is very juicy. It is very informative. It is very emotional. It's just all the things. And an episode on how to find little moments of joy every single day. 
Okay. I love you. And I'll see you next Monday. Now, next Monday for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. I have been looking for a quality fish oil to take myself and recommend to you for years. And I genuinely couldn't find one that met my quality standards. And then I kept hearing from doctors on the pod about how important it was for our brains and our hearts, even dermatologists who said it makes a huge difference for our skin. And I was like, okay, I truly need to figure this out. Then I found O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil from Puri. The brand was literally created because the founder ran into the same problem as me. He couldn't find anything truly pure enough to take daily. Puri believes in full transparency with all of their products. Every single batch is third-party tested by the Clean Label Project and IFOS, which tests fish oils looking for the highest quality, safety, and purity standards in the world against more than 200 contaminants, heavy metals, pesticides, glyphosate, dioxins, and bisphenols, to name a few, and they always receive a 5 out of 5 star rating. Every Puri bottle actually comes with a QR code so you can scan and see the results for yourself. This is well above the standards of any other fish oil I've found, which is so important to me because if I am consuming something for my health, I don't want it to actually be causing harm. Puri's fish oil is so fresh, you'll never get any gross, fishy burps because every batch is tested to make sure it hasn't oxidized and gone rancid. And yes, that is where those burps come from. Do not just take my word. With Puri, you can find actual data behind every single batch, which makes Puri a supplement brand that you can trust. Right now, Puri is offering my listeners 20% off their O3 Ultra Pure Fish Oil and all of their great products. Go to my special URL, puri.com slash Liz Moody, and use my promo code Liz Moody. This even applies to the already discounted subscriptions. You will get almost a third off the price. Go to puri.com slash L-I-Z M-O-O-D-Y. Do not wait. Use promo code Liz Moody at P-U-O-R-I dot com slash Liz Moody.